0: Welcome to Radio Tamboa, an outreach of ACFA, the Africa Center for Apologetics Research. ACFA equips God's people for the defense of the faith, biblical discernment, and cult evangelism. Let's begin today's message. Brothers and sisters, greetings in Christ. We need to test before we trust, especially in our times. We live at a time and age where things are falling apart. You hear of lots of world wars, you hear lots of sicknesses and disease, hungers, great migrations of people from one place to another. The church itself has not been spared from the challenges that characterize a foreign world. There remains lots of problems that come through poverty, through sickness, through disease, through misfortunes, accidents. And now we have the COVID pandemic with us, so the list is endless. And at a time like this, it's not uncommon for anyone to long for relief, for peace from all this chaos and havoc. In times like these, when believers look to God for answers or open the scriptures to find out God's will for their life at this moment, we also recognize that we have leaders, spiritual leaders, pastors and religious workers Who, out of the need to encourage believers in such trying times, end up giving them a false hope that is certainly not biblical? Which is why we are saying that beware of false encouragement. We all agree that we need to be encouraged, especially when things are not going right. The question, however, is... What is the basis of that encouragement? What is the foundation of that encouragement? Is it coming from God's promises or promises from the man of God? Is it coming from biblical truth which sets captives free? Or is it coming from a self-styled prophet who speaks in the name of God, but actually voices his own personal opinions and biases? As we look at this series, we want to look at one of those commonly misused or misunderstood or even misapplied Bible verses, which we find in John 10.10. 10. What is the verse about? Well, the verse says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, if you are one of those who especially grew up in high school scripture unions or Christian unions at universities in Uganda, you may agree with me that this is one of the commonly quoted verses no matter where you look. The challenge, however, is that this verse is often understood differently from what it was meant to be according to the Apostle John as he writes to the believers in the New Testament. I remember when I was growing up in uh, high school, we used to quote this verse when we were in spiritual warfare or conducting deliverances, casting out demons and spells and magics from people in the fellowship, and we would liken this, the thief to Satan, and we would compare and contrast him with Jesus who comes to give us life abundantly, and by abundantly what we understood was actually physical success and well-being. So we would teach that John 10.10 guarantees healing, guarantees success, guarantees wealth, guarantees uh, passing of your exams before even though you have not read. And as I have uh, grown to understand this verse better. And to hear the different people that have given their interpretations of this verse, I recognize that it's one of those verses that fall in the category of commonly misunderstood Bible verses. Verses that are used to offer a false hope, a false encouragement, which certainly never goes far. This verse is especially used by the preachers and teachers in the Word-Faith movement. A movement that stresses the believers' rights to wealth, to health, to happiness, to success on the basis of faith. So most word faith teachers, for instance, would quote John 10.10 10, and they would use it to support the idea that Christianity guarantees physical prosperity and every good thing that you ever need. If there is a verse that has been used as a description of material wealth and prosperity, it is John 10.10. That this verse is a description of the normative pattern of life, where Christians are expected to be better than everyone else who is not a Christian, to be richer, to be more successful, and in everything they do, to always be the head and not the tail. In fact, one word faith preacher using this very verse, had this to say. Success is your birthright. If you are born again, it is your redemptive right, your destiny in God. Success is your kingdom right. Success is your heritage in Christ. It is your covenant birthright in redemption. Failure is an abuse on redemption because Jesus came down to take you up. That is our famous David Oyedepo in Exploring Secrets of Success. What is Oyedepo saying? That as a Christian, you are actually not supposed to face any problems or any troubles. You are provided immunity from all problems and challenges. Your lot and right is success in every way. And that includes material wealth and prosperity. And should you not be rich, then it means you are abusing redemption. So Oyedepo sees Christ's death on the cross as connected to the provision and supply of material wealth for believers. So in simple terms, we would say, Christ died so that you may be rich. Christ died so that you may never lack. But if you think for a moment, is that really what Jesus is saying in John 10.10? Now another famous preacher called Frederick Price sees this verse divided into two. He looks at it as both the promise of spiritual life in the first part and that of material success in the next verse. So, for instance, Frederick Price would read John 10.10 in this way. He would say that, I came that they may have life, meaning spiritual life, salvation, eternal life. And then he would go further and say, And have it, that is, life, abundantly, and by abundantly he would be talking about material wealth. So according to Price, this verse guarantees spiritual life, but also guarantees material wealth and success. According to some of these word faith preachers beyond Frederick Price, there is that belief that believers in Christ are supposed to access abundant health and wealth, while those who are not in Christ are destroyed by Satan. Being a believer, in other words, is summarized as escaping Satan and joining Christ, who offers a license or a ticket to abundant living. And on that premise, it's not uncommon to hear word-faith preachers on crusade grounds and open-air gatherings calling people to Christianity so that they can get abundant life. Come to Jesus and you will be rich. Come to Jesus, your sickness will be gone. Come to Jesus and you will pass your exams. Come to Jesus and you will find sponsors for tuition at university. And the promises go on and on. So people respond to the gospel call, not so much to receive Jesus as their personal Savior and Lord, not so much because they recognize their sinfulness and the grace available in the gospel, but because they see Jesus as a ticket to wellness and health, Jesus as a shortcut from problems of poverty, sickness, and disease, Jesus as a license to your best life now, as we hear Joel Austin say. For them, abundant life is understood materially, and it does not have much to do with eternal life. So according to most word-faith preachers, they see John 10.10 as a restoration of the promise for wellness and goodness, as we see especially how life was in the Garden of Eden before the fall. At the beginning of creation, Adam and Eve had perfect health and all the resources they needed. So they say, and that when they sinned, the result was sickness, poverty, and spiritual death. But Jesus came to provide spiritual redemption and to restore all prosperity enjoyed by Adam and Eve. And so they describe this verse as a promise to that restoration to abundant living. In other words, if you are now a Christian, falling sick would mean that you have not yet experienced the redemption of Christ. Being in poverty would mean that you have not experienced the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, so when they see you poor and sick, it's a sign that you are really not a Christian and I know by now you are probably saying, "Come on, that is going too far, really surely John ten ten cannot say that, and certainly, I agree with you that there is so much that John ten ten has to say to believers today and it does not have much to say about material wealth as what faith preachers would like us to believe. So what is John 10.10 10 really about? And of course, as you remember, to understand a Bible passage very well, you must understand the context in which that Bible passage is set. One challenge of word faith preachers is that often they pick out a verse from the rest of the context, And they use it to and apply it to mean whatever they have decided it should be. But if you look at the context of John 10.10, you will realize that there is so much going on, even much more beyond the material wealth or the abundance eh, that they pick out of uh, the second part of verse 10. The context of this passage actually begins way back in chapter 9. Jesus has just healed a blind man whom he has sent to present himself to the Pharisees in the temple. And upon investigation, the Pharisees recognize that the blind man can now see, but they deny that Jesus really healed him. In fact, they try to accuse Jesus for being a sinner and therefore one who should not be credited with the healing. However, Jesus, after meeting this man again and accepting his worship, Jesus begins to contrast the Pharisees and the teachers of the law with himself. Here is a group of religious leaders that should be shepherding God's people in a redemptive, restorative way, in a way that is encouraging, in a way that dignifies the human person, but instead they are the ones that break him down, that shatter him, that deny his healing. It is as though they would have been happy if this blind man had never seen, just so that they could discredit Jesus' ability to heal. So Jesus begins to talk in what we would call figures of speech, a metaphor, where he brings out the language of shepherding the flock. And as you may know, this would have fitted well within the context and culture of Israel at the time because they were a shepherding culture. So the terms and the words that Jesus applies in his narrative were very well understood by the people of his day. He begins by telling them, that whoever does not enter by the door, whoever does not come in straight and instead passes behind or over the fence is actually a thief, that the true shepherd will pass through the gate will be opened for by the gatekeeper, will lead out the sheep from the sheepfold, and they will hear his voice, and he will walk ahead of them and guide them, and they will follow him. Around verse 7, the narrative tells us that they did not understand what Jesus was saying. So Jesus gives them another figure of speech or another metaphor. And from verse 7, we see him saying, that so Jesus again said to them, Jesus compares himself again as the door of the sheep, that he is the only way through which the sheep can come in and can experience their liberty as sheep. In fact, he says that those who enter by him will be saved. And in this word saved, he references eternal life. In other words, as he compares Israel's people with sheep, by entering through him, they find eternal life. And not only do they find eternal life, but they experience the liberty and freedom that comes out of knowing Jesus, that they are able to go in and they are able to go out and they are able to find pasture having said this now jesus talks about the thief remember he had already talked about thieves as those who do not come in through the right door remember he had already talked about the the, the thief as the robbers and strangers that the sheep do not recognize and now in comparison with that context we recognize that the thief he's talking about is actually the religious leaders of the day who were misleading God's people instead of offering them the right passage into eternal life by teaching them biblical truth. But ultimately, this thief could also be Satan who works through these religious leaders that instead of enabling people to find the path to truth, mislead them away from the only way that results into eternal life. So Jesus compares himself or offers himself as the good shepherd, who, unlike the religious leaders of his day, is the good shepherd who cares about his sheep, is the good shepherd who comes in through the gate. In fact, he is the door through which these sheep can only find life and the only one. And this uh, good shepherd offers them salvation. Not just pasture. So the figure of speech goes beyond just the physical eating to the spiritual transformation that those who enter through him will be saved. And therefore, the passage can be and un- must be understood as pertaining to eternal life and not necessarily just the things that we receive here and there in day to day life. The verse certainly does not mean that believers can have all that they could possibly imagine. The verse is primarily about eternal life that the good shepherd gives as he lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus talks about giving life in abundance, he is not necessarily referring to wealth and happiness and earthly success. Jesus is promising to give us so much life that it will last for all eternity that those who come into him experience the joy, the freedom, the peace that only Jesus can give, that cannot be found in the things of the world. And this life is life that we receive now, and it continues into all of eternity. We must remember that while Christ offers us eternal life, and indeed that's the primary interest of his coming and dying, And while he offers us that eternal life, it is not immunity from problems and troubles on this side of heaven. What faith preachers would like to tell us that you are now entitled to perfection in health and wealth, you should never lack, never suffer, never fall sick, because abundant life is yours. But if you think for a moment, if that were the case, then why do we have several passages in the New Testament that describe the suffering of believers, their lack, and their ultimate persecution, and even death? Did you know that the same Jesus who says, I have come, that they may have life abundantly, is the same one who reminds them of the coming persecution? In John sixteen thirty three, we are told that we will be persecuted. Jesus says you will have tribulation. In fact later in another text he says If they have persecuted me who is your master, how much more will they do to you who are servants? Why does Jesus tell them about the need to take up their cross and daily follow him? What this tells us is that the normative expectation for any believer or Christian is that suffering will be experienced by us on this side of heaven. Therefore, this teaching of success, job promotions, new cars, big houses, visas, are certainly misrepresentations and misinterpretations of what John 10.10 says. When we read about in Peter's letters, not only does Peter write to the scattered suffering church, but he reminds them that their abundance is not here on this side of heaven. In fact, he identifies believers as pilgrims, as aliens, strangers, sojourners who are walking through this world, who must look forward to heaven's glories as their ultimate reward, and not cars and big houses and uh, dollars and, and whatever it is you might think about. In fact, in First Peter 4:12, he reminds the suffering believers that they should not be surprised when they encounter suffering. When we read First Peter chapter three, he is giving them the proper Christian attitude in the midst of suffering. How do you respond to people who hate you, who despise you, who malign you, who persecute you? What should be your attitude? And in verse 15 and 16, where we find our apologetic verses, Peter says, but set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, and always be prepared to give an answer or to make a defense for the reasons of the hope that is within you. He teaches, How they must respond in the face of suffering, which is a current reality in their lives and which is not about to end. And therefore he shows them how to face it, how to deal with it, how to work with it and through it to become the kind of people that God wants them to be. James also tells us to expect trials. In fact, he goes further and he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials. The apostle Paul talks about the afflictions and their purpose, especially how they bring endurance and glory. When you read Romans 5 from verses 3 to 5, when you read 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17. So clearly, believers are not exempt from problems and suffering here on earth. Clearly, John 10.10 10 is not a blanket guarantee that believers will always claim or have anything they want in this life. If that were the case, a big part of the New Testament would not make sense. The Expositor's Bible commentary commenting about John 10.10 10 says that Jesus' main purpose was salvation, the health of the sheep, which he defined as free access to pasture and fullness of life. Under this protection and by his gift, they can experience the best that life can offer. In the context of John's emphasis on eternal life, this statement takes on new significance. Jesus can give a whole new meaning to living because he provides full satisfaction and perfect guidance for his flock. Of course, Jesus does give us abundant life, But this abundant life has nothing to do with the circumstances that we encounter. So because you undergo suffering or you are going through poverty, does not mean that you are not receiving abundant life from Jesus or that you are receiving portions of the life that he gives. Jesus still gives you the fullness of life. And this life is independent of the circumstances and challenges of a broken world. When we assert that pain-free lives are God's reward for the righteous, not only do we insinuate to those who are suffering that their problems are of their own making, but it's like we are saying God has categories of believers. There are those that are most special to him whom he protects from all problems, and there are those whom he neglects, and therefore they live lives of suffering and sorrow here on earth. But you and I know certainly that that cannot be any further from the truth. That suffering is not a sign that God does not love believers. That suffering is not a sign that God's people have not yet experienced the fullness of his blessing. But believers are blessed and blessed abundantly, whether they are undergoing suffering or whether they are living in prosperity and and good health. Unfortunately, the prosperity gospel has poisoned the church today and undermined our ability to deal with evil and suffering. Some churches today have no place for pain. Those who say God has healed them, get the microphone to give testimonies. While those who continue to suffer are shamed into silence and are told that something is wrong with them. Maybe they are not even fully saved or they lack faith. And that is why God has left them to suffer. And unfortunately that is not biblical and it is not even true that as believers we are complete in Christ Jesus that Christ paid it all to the full measure, that believers are already citizens of heaven, sons and heirs of the heavenly inheritance. Suffering on this side of heaven has a lot to do with the fallenness in which we live, the fallen nature that is still at work in us, But we have the promise in the scriptures that God will soon take care of all this. And finally, in the glorious return of Jesus Christ, not only will be believers ushered into heavenly glory, but there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more dying, because the old order of things will have passed away. Until then, the Apostle Paul says that we continue to groan as we wait for the manifestation of the sons of God, as we wait for the ultimate deliverance that will come in the triumphant return of Jesus Christ, our Savior. John 10.10 10 is not a blanket guarantee that we can have material wealth and prosperity if we have them thank god it's an act of his grace not only should we rejoice in them but we should use them for the service of those who do not have for the building of the kingdom of god to the glory of his name and when we don't have them all the more reason to get on our knees and trust god for his provision and he is faithful he will take care of us He might never give us the much that we want to to receive in this world, but he will surely give us all we need to go through this world as sojourners on our way to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city whose foundations and whose architect is God himself. What should be our attitude in this world as believers? Not only should we be able to live lives of rejoicing for the life that Jesus has given us, the salvation that he gives us abundantly, but we must adopt an attitude where Jesus is the most important or most abundant thing that we can ever receive. Psalm 73 verses 25 to 26 says, That whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail me, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. As you look at the psalmist, he is not just looking at abundant life in terms of material things that God can offer, and by the way, the psalmist was a very rich guy. But when you look at this passage, he has understood that there is better and greater abundance beyond the things of this world. And he says that the thing that most excites him is not the things that he has, but the fact that he has God. There is nothing on earth I desire beside you. In other words, for him to have God is more than enough, is abundant enough. He recognizes that his flesh and his heart may fail. He recognizes that he may fall sick from time to time. He recognizes that his property might even be taken away. But his strength is not in the things he has. His strength is not in cars and airplanes and visas. His strength is in God. God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. And that, my friends, is what life abundantly means. That, my friends, is what John tried to capture that the good shepherd, unlike the shepherds of this world, that steal away from you, that cheat you, that even might destroy you, Jesus has come instead to lay down his life that you may receive life. And not just life in terms of one day you will go to heaven, but life that is full. Life that is abundant. Life that is experienced climactically in him. Life that is so joyous as you get grow deeper in Jesus and get to know him as the one and only door through which the sheep must be saved, must come in and out and find passage. When you understand John 10.10 well, in fact, you recognize that the people who promise material wealth and abundant living, they actually do a disservice to the passage. By settling for the material wealth, you limit yourself for the far better things that Jesus offers us in this very verse. Because what we have here as believers is much more than material things, way beyond what material things can ever offer us. And what John 10 says is that with or without material prosperity. Jesus has come as the Good Shepherd to give us much, much more than this world will ever give us. A proper understanding of John 10.10, in spite of your prosperity or your poverty, leads into exuberant worship, leads into confidence that he who has begun the good work in you will indeed bring it to completion. May the Lord bless you as you meditate on this message and as you continue to find encouragement in God's word as is properly interpreted and not just the opinions of preachers or word faith preachers particularly who seek to promise you encouragement that is premised on wrong interpretation of the word of God which ultimately is wishful fantasy. May you find confidence in God. May you find courage in Jesus the Good Shepherd. May you listen to his voice and follow him wherever he takes you. And only as you follow Jesus, only as you walk with him, will you experience that life abundantly. One person and said that it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. There is nothing sweeter than knowing that the good shepherd leads you in and out and that with him you will not only stand for the life of now, but you have confidence in the life of the future to come. May God bless you. To learn more about the Africa Center for Apologetics Research, visit us at africanapologetics.org.